0: Hello, robots, and welcome back to this week's episode of Remedial Studies. It's our first episode of 2019 after taking our short break. Today, we're going to be discussing a novel we have many, many opinions about, as we usually do. (laughs) Deborah Harkness's A Discovery of Witches. It is a trilogy, but we're only going to be discussing the first book. And I think only I'm going to be touching a little bit on the show just because there was recently an adaptation that i happened to watch but this book it's it's a bit dense
1: it's very dense
0: (laughs) it's very dense the audiobook because you know as uh long time listeners of the show will and probably if you've only listened to one episode you'll probably know too. i prefer audiobooks over print books just for like focused things and uh it was like 24 hours long (laughs)
1: It was 24 hours long? It was oh, 24
0: God. hours long. And, <laughs> oh. for the, and sometimes that doesn't bother me because, like, the audiobook for, like, Sarah J. Mass's Court of Thorns and Roses series, like, those are pretty long.
1: Yeah. So
0: I I think it just depends. Weirdly enough, writing style can still impact how long a book feels, even when it's just being read to you. But th- this book, um, do you want me to attempt... To give a brief summary, I will of course be briefer than Miss Harkness herself, or Dr. Harkness, excuse me.
1: I think, uh, you, yeah, as long as you leave out every single meal that they ever ate, I think you will be fine.
0: Every single meal, every vintage of wine, every workout this woman ever did.
1: This isn't Redwall, Deborah.
0: Yeah, and this is like no shade to Deborah Harkness, I just want to say, but like, it was not necessary. So, A Discovery of Witches is the story of... A witch named Diana Bishop who is a history of science professor at Yale who is a witch in a world where vampires and demons also exist and they sort of they try to keep a low profile around humans because um, this is a small detail that Diana drops all the fucking time where her ancestor was like the first woman to be executed for witchcraft in salem and all this other stuff but she's <laughs> she's spending it's either a, i think it's a summer or a year it was so long ago i can't remember at oxford to take a year to research and to give a talk and like a keynote lecture on specifically the history of alchemical manuscripts which is how she finds a book called Ashmole Mole 782, which allegedly has been missing for like a century and a half. And yet she's able to just put it, the request for it on a slip to the nice young man at the Bodleian library, and they just bring it to her. So after this event, uh, she meets many, many, many creatures, but the chief of which, who we will follow throughout the rest of the novel is a vampire named Matthew Claremont, who is very classical romance novel vampire, and I'm not saying that's a bad thing. Because I, I think... <laughs> um, we'll talk about this later, but there's been some assumptions made about, like, trying to draw comparisons from this book to other popular vampire literature, and a lot of it's tinged with, like, a kind of a mocking tone, and I'm not really down for that. But anyway... Matthew and Diana, as you do in this genre, um, fall in love over the course of, like, two weeks. (laughs) He starts to, quote-unquote, protect her from this all-knowing, all-powerful entity of power in the world of magic and vampires and demons, which is called the Congregation it's insinuated at one point that they murdered diana's parents and there's i think like his older brother is on the congregation and basically what they're trying to do is they're trying to find diana it's revealed later in the book that they're trying to find her because she has the potential to be the most powerful witch ever because she's the protagonist and (laughs) there's a thing where called the Covenant. Where apparently cross-species fornication is frowned <laughs> upon. And oh boy, do Matthew and Diana want to fornicate? So... <laughs> but over the course of the novel, we meet many, many interesting side characters. We meet Isabeau de Claremont, who's the bossest bitch ever. And <laughs> yes. there's... The people who work at Matthew's lab, because he's a biochemist, I think mm-hmm. he's st- currently studying like vampire demon in which genetics because vampires are allegedly dying out because they can no longer or it's very difficult for them to make new vampires. And that theme of like conception and reproduction kind of goes through the book in and out in some ways. I'm very interested to hear your opinions about the science of this book because I don't know enough about it. Oh boy. To confirm or dispute. Do
1: I have opinions about the science in this book.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but Diana is taken by a witch called Satu, who was sent by members of the congregation. Specifically, I believe Peter Knox, who's a witch, and Gerbert, last name I can't remember, he used to be a pope. Who's a vampire, and she's she basically almost tears her apart in this incredibly traumatic event to like try to get her power and try to convince her that like Matthew doesn't love you, he just wants the book. Cause everybody wants this manuscript because allegedly it's either the first grimoire, that's what the witches think it is, and the demons and the vampires are more concerned with, oh, it has secrets to why we're here and how we're made and stuff like that like it ties back into a lot of like alchemical theory about the philosopher's stone which is used to create the elixir of life and like harkness draws a lot of parallels between that and the process of becoming a vampire which i thought was kind of interesting but at the end of the book it is discovered that diana again has every power you can imagine they go visit her amazing lesbian aunts in madison new york (laughs) and they're not having it (laughs) for a bit it is discovered that a way to get the training she needs to be able to defend herself is to time walk which is a kind of witchy time travel where you can go back to the past and at the very end of the book they go back to 1590s london presumably to go chill with christopher marlowe
1: who Matthew calls Kit.
0: Oh, yeah, apparently they were BFFs, but I really <laughs> want to believe they were more than that because it would, like, really satisfy my own theories about Kit Marlowe, but, like, that's me.
1: <sighs> yeah, Matthew is like, up and down. I'm super straight, but it's...
0: But you're 1,500 years old, my guy. <laughs> you're going to tell me? For real? Like, no. But that's kind of the basic premise of the book, is it follows Diana and Matthew through their relationship. I think we both agreed, and this might be a good starting point. As far as Harkness's style, the minutia can get in the way.
1: Yeah, on the one hand, like, it's super we talked about this, it's super indulgent, like, yes. you want to be there and eat this food and drink this wine, but at the same time, like, nothing is happening except they're eating and drinking, and maybe, like, there's there's an attempt to build some, like, romantic tension there, like, in drawing these things out and focusing on, on the sensuality of the food and the wine. Yeah. But it just doesn't work for me.
0: I kind of agree with that, because I, I, get the idea of wanting to draw attention to the ritual of eating as something that is a precursor or an act of intimacy in and of itself because matthew's a vampire Mm -hmm. and like i get that and i get what she was going for but i kind of agree i don't think it was as effective as it could have been if she was if she just had a little bit more brevity with it
1: yeah And also, this is my personal opinion, but, like, the romance aspect is also moves incredibly slow. Because I don't know what it is about, like, 1,500-year-old vampires and, like, not wanting to move the physical stuff on quickly. But that's also an issue in, like,
0: Twilight, right? Oh, my God. No. (laughs) Hannah. So I finished (laughs) this book, like, last night. I purposefully did not finish the show because I knew I was going to read the book. And... The fact that they didn't fucking bang at the end. <laughs> I'm like, no, her name's not Diana. Her name's Deborah. Deborah. <laughs> Why? Because to me, even with the thing at the end where it's alleged that they could potentially have children and no human birth control could work against it and whatever. I get that. Plot things. But, like, there is... Contract between the reader and the writer (laughs) that I'm gonna get something for this, and I got nothing. (laughs) I got nothing.
1: Okay, well, I'm glad I'm not the only one who's like, I thought this was a romance novel, and you're not. There are certain genre conventions that are (laughs) promises between the reader and the writer, like you're saying, and I feel a little cheated. Just a little, just a little cheated.
0: Just a little cheated, and like. I know it's a bit quibbly, and I totally get that, but, like, there's no reason other than trying to do something with vampires' experience of time and how they just go slow with everything. There's no fucking reason they shouldn't have had (laughs) sex. I'm sorry.
1: (laughs) Oh, it didn't even need to be, like, detailed. It probably could have even been fade to black. And I would have been fine.
0: Because we get a little bit. We get a little bit. We get a little bit.
1: There's a lot of heavy petting. There's a lot of heavy petting. Unnecessary.
0: (laughs) I know. And it was kind of the thing where I was like, like, I wasn't that mad about it. But I'm just like, this isn't what (laughs) I want. (laughs) And also the fact that, like, he got a blowjob and she didn't. Like, that's whack, Matthew. I'm sorry.
1: (laughs) I didn't even catch that.
0: I I'm think... pretty sure that's what happened. I may just be misremembering, though.
1: No, I think you're right. I think I just glossed right over it.
0: <laughs> I think it's in the book because I know for a fucking fact, uh, your boy does go down in the show. Because <laughs> Matthew Goods got me. He knows what I want. I don't know. Now that we've talked about this for way too long. I am interested to know because, as um, our readers may or may not know, you have a you have an actual degree in biology, right? Unlike my degree, which is basically in Shakespeare. Um. So.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm not going to pretend to know more than Dr. Deborah Harkness because she is a science historian, so I'm sure she has a fairly good grasp on these concepts and it's just the way that they were implemented that's a little bit bothering me because so I think the the most interesting question for me in the book has to do with like this idea of speciation between mm-hmm. the groups called like the creatures, which are the vampire vampires, witches, and demons, And then the question is, are all of these creatures Are they different species or not? And what does that mean politically for them? Because there's this moratorium on cross-species fraternization. And the thought is, by the end of the book, that the conclusion that they've reached is that they are kind of in a new phase of evolution. And in order to adapt, there's going to be more interbreeding or they will, you know, go extinct because they need these new, the new combinations will lead to new adaptations that will hopefully allow some of them to survive in this next phase of their evolution. As as to why um, originally they were forbidden to fraternize because it would call too much attention and, and bring the humans into it. But there's a couple of really interesting things in there. Uh, I think it's interesting that she decided to... Like, she ties the each witch power to a single genetic marker, which I was like, mm. <laughs> that's probably not how that would work. She does this thing where she talks about the number of chromosomes that, the, that things have, that witches and vampires have an extra pair of chromosomes. And daemons have, like, one extra chromosome. They don't have an extra pair. They just have one. But I don't know. Like, having the way that that human... Well, anyway, the way that meiosis works and, like, cell division works, it's real bad to have, like, an uneven number of chromosomes. And that's why... Like, extra chromosomes are associated with, like, a lot of different syndromes in human genetics. So, like, I also was, like, raised an eyebrow at that. But the idea of speciation, like, there are a couple different ways that you can go about creating a new species. And one of the ways is that, like, if the species can still, you know, have relations and produce offspring, the offspring are sterile. Or maybe mechanically, like, the parts just don't fit together. You see that a lot in insects which I'm sure is not what's happening here. Insects are real strange. The other problem is, like, if, like, they have different chromosomes, like, it's gonna be real weird to, like, match those up and make them go together in a way that makes sense. So, like, I think that's why it seems so risky to them because the chances of, like, miscarriage or not conceiving at all are gonna be really high in that situation, just from, like, your standard scientific perspective, not bringing in all this crazy magic stuff the other way one of the other ways you can have a different species though is that and this one i think gets underrated generally speaking we're really focused on the biological species concept which has to do with not being able to produce fertile offspring but species can basically self-select themselves into existence so like if you have a population of like orange and blue toads and they're the same species but the orange toads will only breed with themselves, and, like, the blue toads will only breed with themselves, you end up with two new species, a blue toad and an orange toad. So I kind of wonder if that's maybe what Deborah Harkness is getting at here. But also, there's no reason for them not, those species not to come back together. And it's really hard to determine, like, at what point does complete you know, biological speciation happen. So that's a lot of science talk about something that people probably weren't that interested in. I was interested. But that was what was running through my head this entire book, trying to figure out, like, well, <laughs> would these extra chromosomes really pr- prove to be that much of an issue? There's a Damon couple at the end of the book, and it turns out that there's a Damon. She was born to witch parents, which is very unusual. Demons are normally born to humans. Mm-hmm. That's the other thing is, where is that whole extra chromosome coming from? Because humans yeah. don't—you can't just magic an extra chromosome into existence. Or maybe you can, because there is magic. That's the thing is, once you combine magic and genetics, like technically, every option is open to you because you have this—you <laughs> have a trump card, and it's magic.
0: Because the whole thing is, like, especially at the end of that book sophie who's the young woman who the young demon who's pregnant she is dead convinced that her daughter's going to be a witch yes and this is coming at the end of this long and drawn out more of attrition conversation between diana and matthew about are they going to ever be able to have kids <laughs> and then there's this lady who just rolls up and is like got one cooking already for you I, I honestly,
1: that's my favorite moment of the book where they're like, is it a good idea for us to have kids? What will they turn out like? And Then Sophie uh, and her husband, who are both demons, roll up and are like, we got a witch in here. And that seems slightly more likely to me from a biological perspective because yeah. like their two chromosomes could have mushed together and create the extra set.
0: Yeah, that makes... See, that's the thing. Sophie and Nathaniel, two daemons having a witch. That makes so much more biological sense to me. (laughs) And I don't know shit about much. But that... Like, that makes more sense to me. And I guess I'm not really certain... Because I don't know if we've had a lot of the... How much internal sense this (laughs) universe is supposed to make. And I'm sure it is supposed to make some kind of internal sense... And maybe I just didn't catch it on this reading. <laughs> I don't understand why... If witches and dragons... And dragons... Jesus. If, <laughs> if, if, I tried to say Dracula, and I just weird. I don't understand how if witches and vampires have the same number of chromosomes, what the issue is. Because it sounds to me... Like most medieval institutions, the congregation is just afraid of how powerful a potential offspring like that could be.
1: Oh, yeah, that could be.
0: This is something that gets brought up a few times in the book where Matthew quotes this theory that he shares that the only two emotions that drive anything in the world are desire and fear. And uh, we see that. A little bit in how the congregation acts in their offstage, shadowy, Greek theater way. (laughs) Where they either do things because they want something or because they're afraid of something. Mm -hmm. They kill Diana's parents because they're convinced her father has the power that she really has. Or it it is deeply insinuated that that is what happened. Because her parents often speak from beyond the grave. Through either Diana's own memories, or I really love the Bishop House
1: as a concept,
0: as this like benignly haunted house that they're always like, Well, house will take care of it. And it's (laughs) like they have this room called the keeping room where you leave things and you're like, House, you're going to take care of this, right? And then the house takes care of it and it spits it out when someone needs it. And there's letters and a page from Ashmole 782 that has also been missing for the whole time diana's been researching it that are from her parents and there's the whole idea that her father was a time walker and he went back in time and and enchanted ashmole 782 so diana could only call it when she needed it the most and that's a kind of an undercurrent in this book is the whole concept of need both on, like, a biological scale and also, like, a rom- the typical romantic style of need and, like, Diana needing something to, like, open her magic and all this other stuff. Like, that's something that runs through the book. And that's, I think, a bit characteristic of vampire fiction. Mm-hmm. Like, vampire fiction is we know it. I guess what I'm saying is, like, vampire fiction as a distinct subgenre of romance. Ah, uh. Does that make sense?
1: <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, it really, it, it seems like it really, I think it's always been there. I mean, we've always had, I don't know, Anne Rice isn't really romance-y, is she? I don't know. I, I think so. I, I
0: think Anne Rice did enough weird genre bending that she's like her own subgenre now.
1: <laughs> I. You know what? I feel that. So, like, I don't know, because we've always had Anne Rice, and I'm sure we've had things even earlier than that, with these weird sexual undertones and vampires and blood and stuff. And, yeah. like, it's interesting because I feel like in this latest wave, we've almost started to divorce the idea of vampires from, I feel like, what was really their genesis, which is this idea of, like, sexual and moral corruption. Mm-hmm. And we've started to sort of sanitize them a little bit, like Diana forgives Matthew all of his trespasses always, and he's had quite a few of them.
0: Yeah, and I don't that know how I feel me. about
1: that. Yeah, I didn't like it. I'm like, he just are you? He didn't even ask you. If,
0: <laughs> like, right? Like, because a thing is, and we talked about this a little bit in the in the production meeting. I really think my problem. My bone to pick with Matthew is he doesn't understand the difference between having a reason to do something and having an excuse to do something. Like, he does all these things and he assumes that there's a way to excuse the behavior in a way that will avoid any consequence. Even if the consequence won't be, like, a big thing. Even if all it means is, like, oh, Diana will remember this. Like a fucking telltale game. (laughs) Like, even that, he's just kind of, like... Like, they they rely on this, like, pack instinct kind of thing, and that really bothered me at some points. Not because I disagreed necessarily with a lot of the action he took, it was the attitude. And Mm. the fact that he's just like, well, I'm doing this to protect you, so why do you have a problem with it? And it takes, like, Em and Sarah, who are her aunts, are like, did you really have to kill that lady? (laughs) like did you really really have to and he does not like being questioned that's established very early in Mm -hmm. the book that he does not like to be questioned and that was when i was like "Mm, am i gonna like this guy
1: yeah it's just i think the thing that bothered me too is that diana is just like well i love him Therefore, mm. I have to accept everything about him and his vampire nature. I kind of be like, girl, you don't have to.
0: <laughs> you don't have to do anything. <laughs> yeah. I-, I think that's one thing that I really wanted to, like, get in Diana's head. Because she gets it about her magic at some points, But when it comes to her relationship, she doesn't. I'm like, you do not have to do anything. Not for this dude. Not for your aunt's not for anybody like at some point it makes me question whether she's just a mouthpiece for all this justification yeah that's going around and it very well may just be that that was an accidental motif on the part of harkness but at some points i'm just like she she makes his excuses for him Mm -hmm. diana when she doesn't need to And now that that precedent has been set, I'm like, well, now you're going to live in the fucking 1590s. And (laughs) God only knows what that's going to be like. Because it's this whole thing of, and I get it, he's 1500 years old. No one, I feel, no one is the same person. I'm not the same person I was this time last year. Right. I can't imagine how much I would change over the course of a millennium and a half. Mm Mm-hmm. And that's fine, and that's normal, and that's what people do. But to be like, oh, well, he's not going to be the same. It was It's Hamish who says this. Well, you know he's not going to be the same when you go back. And she's like, well, my Matthew's going to go back with me. And he, like, kind of side-eyes her a bit. I'm (laughs) like, no, Hamish. What would the difference be? Because there shouldn't be one. So I guess my whole point with all of that is... To me, that kind of behavior undermines the romance aspect. Because that isn't romantic to me. No. I agree with you. What really bothers me is something you said, where it's like she accepts it because she loves him. And that's not cool. <laughs> that's not a thing. And it shouldn't be a thing. Mm-hmm. And I know that that in and of itself is kind of a trope. Yeah. And I get it, we're all existing in this fantasy universe and whatever, but, like, you shouldn't necessarily have to apply the pack tactics of a fucking northern gray wolf or whatever the shit to your boyfriend. Right. I don't give a shit what species he is. He's still a person.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Okay, but follow-up question? Yes. Are there any healthy, well-adjusted vampire romances
0: you know what that's fair that's fair that's fair ask and answered. maybe it just bothers me because it feels like with the tone of the book and how much diana doesn't want to be associated with that world for so long mm-hmm. the fact that she just buys into it wholesale yeah bothers me i think maybe that's it
1: yeah i i could see that like all of a sudden she's like well this is what we need to do in order like this is what matthew wants so
0: two weeks later let's do that yeah exactly and like isabeau gets in on it at some point because she's like it all kind of boils down to like well you don't want to make him mad do you (laughs) and that's only really brought up like a couple times, I guess, by other vampires. Mm-hmm. So to me, it made a weird internal kind of sense for them to be like that. But at the same time, I'm like, how is that acceptable behavior?
1: <laughs> real talk, though. Uh,
0: my only other real big bone I want to pick with the actual... I don't want to say the actual writing, cause I think the actual writing's fine, but with the style Harkness chose to write this book. I have usually no problem with first person narration as long as it suits what you're trying to do and to me when i read this book i found myself much more interested and much more compelled by like the third person this is what's happening off stage chapters and this also might be because i came to this show having watched most sorry came to this book having watched most of the show it, which Really buys into that third-person narration of showing you the congregation in Venice, and uh, Nathaniel and Sophia are brought in a lot earlier because we meet their mom, we meet his mom so much earlier, and she's a demon on the congregation, and there's all this stuff with Gerber that is I'm sure happening in the book, but Diana doesn't know it. So I really think that by sticking with that first-person narration. It's easy to fall into the minutiae that we talked about. Where if you have to focus solely on what's important to her constantly, you end up coming down with like, oh, this is all the vintages of the wine we drank. This is all the food. (laughs) This is my every waking thought about dating a vampire. And that's not to say that any of that stuff is bad. I just think with the effort Harkness... Appears to have put into her world building, I think all that work would have been better served as a third person yes, book. Yes. Even if it's like close third person, like even if it's still with Diana most of the time and it just ventures off every so often, even that I think would have better served what she was trying to do.
1: Mm hmm. Even if she had just inserted more third-person chapters with, like, more of a global perspective to, like, yeah. punctuate the first person, I feel like that contrast could have been real, really nice.
0: I agree. I think even keeping it as a contrast and having it more frequently would have helped because – and I don't know if she's trying to keep us in the dark for dramatic effect mm-hmm. as long as possible, which is very possible. At some point, when you know everything is happening, but it's not happening to the person you're looking at, (laughs) it's kind of boring.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I would agree with that. Can we also talk about that this is very clearly a self-insert and that we're okay with that and we support Deborah (laughs) Harkness?
0: Yeah, yeah, we talked about this um, a few days ago where it's, I mean... De- Deborah Harkness, basically, is she has the job Diana Bishop has in the book, where <laughs> she's a professor of the history of science, she studied abroad at Oxford, she does all this stuff, and that's fine. And you know why that's fine? Because fucking dudes do it all the time. You had a great comment where you were like, every spy thriller ever is a male <laughs> author self insert and I believe that and, and and it really frustrates me when we as a reading public hold women and female like when we hold female authors to different standards and I think that is a different standard that we have because yeah. nobody questions James Patterson
1: yeah. Well, I haven't read any James Patterson to be fair. I
0: haven't read any James Patterson either. And you know, he's so prolific. <laughs> but it's the whole thing of like I think it's totally normal as a person who writes to insert something of yourself into a character for your own investment. I think that's totally normal and totally chill. Yeah. My my issue with it comes when people try to use that as like a gotcha. I sometimes (laughs) I've noticed this on my perusal of the internet. (laughs) It came out more when the show came out because the books were finished like four years ago Mm -hmm. or something like that. And uh, uh, she published another book that's just about Marcus, which I might actually read because I like Marcus. (laughs) Like there's this whole thing where people are calling it a, oh, it's just Twilight for adults or it's just insert whatever is current here for insert audience here. (laughs) And and I get really frustrated when people try to use that as like a huh, huh, see, because it, it doesn't, I'm like, okay. <laughs> and? <laughs> exactly. And? Like, why is that a bad thing? And I saw a great post about it on Tumblr, and we've talked about this. There's something about the indulgence of this book that transfers very well to the screen. Mm-hmm. That is oddly comforting. Yeah. It's that whole thing. It's that contract between reader and author where I came to this book and even though I knew it was going to be a variation on some tropes, like every book always is, nothing new has been told under the sun, it's nice to be like, well, I have a general idea of what I'm going to get and we're going to have a good time doing it. And I really think in reading through this book, I think she had fun writing it. I and do. that makes me want to read it.
1: Yeah. I also, like, if I were going to write a self-insert novel, I mean, I would have probably written the same thing. Like, oh, I'm a super athletic woman who's an accomplished academic wonderkind who goes on overseas trips to Britain and spends tons of time in beautiful buildings working with rare manuscripts. And oh, my boyfriend's super hot and I eat a lot of delicious food and we go horseback riding. And I'd take lots of luxurious baths.
0: Yes. I would 100% (laughs) write that shit. Yeah, like that 100%. (laughs) That's what women want. That is what women want. And I think it's like, weirdly enough, in watching the show, there's a lot of female (laughs) gays. I haven't talked about female gays in a while. But I think the whole idea... Of a character like Matthew, who, even if we completely disagree with the justification for his actions or whatever, the fact that there is a person who is supernaturally powerful and who will do anything for you <laughs> is a bit of a power fantasy,
1: yeah, for sure, and he's also gets like the more emotional he is, the more French he gets. I'm weak for that
0: <laughs> oh, I'm about real. that shit, I'm about it,
1: yeah, so the the Malion stuff.
0: Oh, the second the second the French pet names came out, I'm
1: like, mm,
0: I'm done. I'm in it.
1: Yeah. No. Real talk though, because that was the thing. It was there. It was indulgent, and sometimes I'm like, oh my god, can we just get on with it? But like, <laughs> <laughs> at the same time, like, you appreciate that level of detail because that if you were living it, like, to help you kind of experience that, you know what I mean? Like you were living it, you'd want to know all these things and you'd be experiencing all these things.
0: Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I 100% agree. And I think the thing that makes me so frustrated with the whole Twilight for Adults, if I may wax poetic on this for a moment.
1: Absolutely.
0: Is, first of all, I don't think that's inherently a bad thing. And I'll tell you why. Because, first of all, Stephanie Meyer did not invent that trope. (laughs) she didn't Uh. she may have popularized it for the 21st century and all that other stuff and i was actually talking about this to somebody the other day about how looking back on twilight now i'm much more critical but you talked to eighth grade rachel who was in it (laughs) and was so invested and that's how a lot that was like my gateway into fiction more like discovery of witches where it's a bit more mature both in like the sexual romantic sense and also in like the writing Mm -hmm. sense it's not a bad thing to want to indulge yourself unless it is literally your job i guess reading to me should not feel like a chore Mm -hmm. and while there are definitely times in this book where it does like especially in the beginning i've noticed this in a lot of people's reviews in the beginning where she's sort of like setting up who diana is i did think it was kind of funny how a lot of like the first page is just her being like i'm this i'm this and then i did this and all this other stuff (laughs) because that's and i say this with all the love in my heart it was very fan fictiony to me (laughs) (laughs) yeah which i'm not mad about it treated it like fun yes and that's what I remember most from my time being in on the twilight bandwagon is I was having fun and I was six, I was like 14 and it was fine. And I think the fact that this, that this person is replicating that feeling for people is a good thing. And really, I think this is worth mentioning. I really don't understand this trend and I, it might have already died out by now, but I remember it was a conversation a few months back on Twitter of the whole idea of genre readers, romance readers in particular, needing to be challenged. Why? <laughs> Why do you think that? <laughs> and that, and not in like, a, oh, I'm me in particular. I'm gonna do this thing because it's what I want to do with the story. I want to tell whatever, man. It's your book. You can do whatever the fuck you want. But to be like, oh, we as a genre have to do X, Y, Z. Like, fuck you. (laughs) I don't come here to be challenged. (laughs) Yeah. I don't. And that's fine. I really think, to bring this back to an earlier point I made, it really upsets me when genres and modes of fiction that are typically geared towards a largely female audience get that kind of scrutiny because it's usually not it does not have an equal and opposite reaction in a male-dominated genre
1: yeah where where are the takedowns of like spy thrillers being repetitive and formulaic and boring where is it because they're violent
0: every spy thriller is the same book
1: i think it's because they're violent to be honest they're I think so they're it edgy is.
0: it's because it's a male power fantasy yeah yeah. Which is very different than the traditional female power fantasy, which is more like this book where you have a guy and he loves you and he loves you just the way you are. That that to me, the whole concept of someone loving you exactly as you are without an expectation of change mm-hmm. is an intensely powerful fantasy that has been explored from time immemorial and will probably continue to be explored because it's something that is either impossible or very difficult to attain (laughs) in real life because most of the time you have to change and compromise to have a fulfilling healthy relationship
1: yeah yeah i mean i agree and i think women are so socialized to think that they have to change and present themselves Mm -hmm. in a certain way in order to be attractive or lovable like yeah having someone say like i don't care about any of that i just love you like oh what a relief
0: (laughs) Exactly. It's a relief that you don't have to buy into this style of love and attractiveness that is inherently built on performance. mm mm-hmm. I really like that, because it it really does all go back to Margaret Atwood and male fantasies, male fantasies. <laughs> Say it three times Three times in a mirror, she'll appear behind oh, you.
1: Oh, leave me alone, Maggie.
0: Oh, <laughs> uh, she's writing a sequel to Handmaid Tale, and I'm I just know. ready for her to come for my whole fucking life. <laughs> I <know. laughs>
1: I'm not ready, I'm pretty sure that her and Joyce Carroll Oates are like a secret superhero duo, but
0: they're they're definitely in, they're definitely in cahoots.
1: cannot confirm for sure
0: <laughs> cannot confirm would not be surprised yeah, but I guess the reason with with all its faults, which to me I say faults but challenges that for me, I think were largely on a technical level uh-huh, as far as like choices of how to write things and the minutia even though I kind of got what it was going for so I let it slide. Yeah. Even with all that, I really I obviously read the whole thing. Yes. <laughs> I did not feel it was time wasted. No. Which sometimes that's all I want. <laughs> I want to be involved and I don't want to feel my time was wasted mm-hmm. and I was and I was both with with this book I really wish we as, like, a reading community, maybe even, like, we can kind of apply this to the the podcast critic community as a whole, I feel, maybe. I really wish people didn't feel the need to separate things into, I love this and I hate this. Yeah. Because I didn't really do either with this book, but I liked it. Mm -hmm. I thought it did what it wanted to do, and I think there is a virtue in that. Yeah, absolutely. In writing.
1: Because I feel like we wrap up our own personal preferences and whether or not something was good or bad. Yeah. And I think anytime you can recognize, like, hey, I didn't like this; it just wasn't for me. Yeah. But that doesn't mean that it's with totally without merit. I mean, there's definitely in the library field we have we have a little phrase for that, and that's every book its reader, and every reader their book. So, you know, it speaks to how personal our relationships with books are and the things that are going to work for us and won't work for us are really specific to who we are as people, and we should probably recognize that in our critical analysis of any kind of work. Okay, robots, that is it for today. Thank you for joining me, and Rachel for today's discussion of whatever this book was called, A Discovery of Witches (laughs) by Deborah Harkness. I really enjoy getting into that science stuff. I don't know if you guys do, but that's fine because this is our podcast. I'm going to do what I want. I hope you will join us in another two weeks. We're going to talk about To All the Boys I've Loved Before, so if you think our analysis of of the romance genre is fun, you'll want to tune in for that one. After that, we're going to do Frankenstein. And then after that, we're going to do The Fifth Elephant, which is the next book in our remedial read-along series, which is the the City Watch part of the Discworld series. And then, we've planned so far ahead, we're so prepared for this year, we're going to actually do a Dungeons & Dragons special focusing on our own campaign. This was a listener request, so any invitation to be that self-indulgent on a public platform, we're absolutely taking. So we're really excited for our lineup for the next few weeks, and we hope you are, too. If you enjoyed this episode, please give us a like, a rating, a review, tweet at us, email us. We will respond eventually. Uh, Rachel, do you want to tell them how they can reach us?
0: Um, I will do so. So uh, we have various and sundry social medias. We're most active on Twitter, however. We're at Remedial Studies, um, exactly the way the show's spelled. We're also at Remedial Studies on Instagram, though I have been lax in posting. But new new year, new us. (laughs) And on remedialstudiespodcast.tumblr.com. Though, however, our email for us has been kind of popping off lately with all these wonderful, wonderful people. We had so somebody from New Zealand. We had someone from Sweden. Like all this fun stuff. Our there's real people behind our stats, guys. It's crazy, shocking. I am. But floored. that's remedialstudiespodcast@gmail.com, and we of course welcome any any mail you want to send us. Uh, like I said, our our D and D bonanza is gonna be from a listener request and like I said, please give us a reason to talk about these things. Like we would usually do them anyway, but we love being given a reason. So I think that's all the places to find us. Like Hannah said, if, if you do like us, please um, show that on various social medias as well as your podcast distributor of choice. It really does mean a lot to us, but I think this first episode of the year is done and it's time for us to turn off our microphones and go do other things yep bye robots bye robots